It's been a, a true a delight for me to be here. Um, although I was whining a little bit that I was talking all day yesterday, I actually enjoyed it. I was very surprised to, to even when I was spending time with college students at 10.30 last night, um, talking about the biblical sexual ethic. It was, it was very, um, it was good. Um, I've enjoyed getting to know uh, your pastor. Um, we actually uh, had never met until I showed up here, and so it was a little risky on his part to, to invite me, but it's been a true delight um, to, to get to know Robert, and I think, uh, I think, I think you're blessed to have him uh, as your pastor, and, and uh, being able to spend some time with Will and, and, and Mark, and of course, uh, Marshall, I guess you call him Marsh. Just, <laughs> Kind of fit you in the bluegrass area, I guess, and then, and then, um, JD. There we go. Yeah. Um, I, I think I think God's doing something special here, okay? and, and I say this as somebody who's from the Northeast, and um, somebody who's spending time in urban centers around the world. Spending, I spend time with hundreds and thousands of pastors and leaders. Um, uh, that's kind of what I do, and, and um, so it's been a blessing for me to be here and to spend time with you. This is Saturday morning, you're here, Saturday morning. Either um, you don't have a very exciting life, <laughs> or you're here because you're eager to uh, continue to consider deeply the implications of what it means for the gospel to shape um, and, uh, and, um, and drive uh, what we do for every dimension uh, of life and ministry. And, um, and, and that's a, a very encouraging thing. I tried to talk a little bit about cities the first night, but, but I think at that point you might have um, um, checked out of uh, what I was trying to say. So, so I want to enter into this again as we talk about the symbolic capital of cities. What Hunter calls the symbolic capital of of culture, and, and I am going to to find my way into uh, into an understanding of the city, in this particular city of Lexington. And again, when we talk about the city, even though you might say, "Well, I live again, Georgetown, whatever, 15, 20 minutes away," and it might be a, a beautiful ex-urban in a rural, perhaps, countryside. I'm not very familiar with that uh, town, but, um, but you're still part of this church, the vision of this church. Um, you still probably work and play and shop uh, in the metro Lexington area. So, so even if you're not living in the center of Lexington, um, you need to know that the shaping power of the city of Lexington uh, is uh, affecting you one way or the other. Um, again, we said that cities are important because of the trend of urbanization and the rise of globalization. You need to understand that the island of governance no longer resides with nation states. It resides with city states. In that regard, it is our present moment uh, because we live uh, in an urban movement and you know that our future is an urban future and that we are an urban species. That's just, that's just a, a reality, right? Everyone is migrating, right? I told you 25, 30 years from now, 75% of the world's population will live in urban centers. Um, and in that regard, our present moment in history is a lot more similar to the moment of the Mediterranean basin during the rise of the early church. It is not accidental that the strategy of the Holy Spirit through the person of Apostle Paul planted all of the churches in urban centers. Again, this is not to have a so-called anti-suburban, anti-ex-urban bias. Of course, the Bible, wherever there are people you need to have gospel preaching, gospel-shaped churches, and to care for people because God loves people. 
people are the only uh, uh, living things or entities uh, that have been created in the image of God, and God loves his creation. He loves trees, but he loves people more than he loves trees. Be encouraged by that. And so, um, and there are more people in cities and urban centers than there are in any other human settlement. So, um, and so, Every church, every uh, a church that Paul planted was in an urban center that had a population over 30,000 people. You can look at uh, Rodney Stark's uh, historical sociological analysis of the rise of the early church um, in his two books on this issue. Um, and so Rome, Ephesus, Alexandria, Philippi, Thessalonica, Laodicea, um, and and that was the strategy because Paul knew, again, as the city goes, so goes the wider culture. And, and so when we think about the American economy, we don't think about, we, we don't think about whatever that is, the, the economy of the United States. You think about Wall Street. You think about the British economy. You think about the London Stock Exchange. And so... So cities have more in common with other cities than rural areas that are in closer geographic proximity to a particular city. So, so we are in a very important and unique historical moment. And my desire is if God, through his kind of strategic plan, grew the early church, with an urban-centric approach, is that not possible as we think about the renewal and the revival of the late modern church? And so I said, in order for us to have a robust city vision, we need to understand the following. I briefly talked about the importance of reaching cities. Um, and I said that there are three ingredients uh, that are important for us to consider when we think about the, the importance of cities, why cities matter. I said that cities are centers of power, cities are centers of culture, and cities are centers of worship. And so I said that cities are centers of power because cities are engines. They capitalize on human innovation to drive our world. That sounds like a BMW commercial. And the fuel is creativity. Again, the rise of the creative class. And you might not be aware, but in the year 1900, we had two primary sectors involved in our economic output as a nation. So one was manufacturing, and the other one was the service sector. But today, you have three major sectors. One would be manufacturing, the other one would be the service, and the third would be the creative class. And so what you find in the creative class, again, this doesn't just include artists and musicians, but it includes entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, uh, it includes engineers, it, it, it includes the whole industry of technology, that, that they are driving uh, the world uh, through the propulsion of ideas, because I said that our world is no longer animated by the manufacturing of goods, it is now propelled by ideas. Um, and, and we, as I said, we live in a uh, spiky world. And cities are centers of culture. Um, that it, it shapes our culture, and I talked uh, bl uh, briefly uh, about that, so I won't repeat what I said there, but simply to say that cities optimize and maximize human potential. And, um, and then now I want to talk about cities as uh, centers of worship. So this is kind of where I'm picking up uh, from what I introduced the first night. You need to know that every city has an urban liturgy. Okay. James uh, K.A. Smith talks about this in Desiring the Kingdom. That every city has an urban liturgy. And we, you need to figure out what that liturgy is. 
for the city of Lexington. If I can, if I can use one of my friends uh, a, a phrase and apply it to cities, uh, Greg Beal, when he was kind of exegeting Isaiah 6 in terms of corporate uh, Israelite idolatry, he said it this way, but I'm going to apply it to cities. A city resembles what it reveres either for ruin or for restoration. So city, cities, a city resembles what it reveres either for ruin or for restoration. If anything has ultimate cosmic significance besides God as the object of our worship, then your life becomes apocalyptic that is around that particular object of your worship. So again, as I said, Ernest Becker has said, if you think that relationships are too important to you, it becomes apocalyptic, apocalyptic romanticism. Like, oh, no, if I don't have this relationship, or if I don't have him, or I don't have her, then, then my life is going to fall apart. Well, not really, but we're kind of being overly dramatic. But, but that's what happens when that becomes the center of your uh, worship. And because cities are centers of worship and hope, it attracts all sorts of people. Cities are magnets. Cities attract aspirational people, marginalized people, explorational people. So let's look at the first one. It attracts aspirational people. Now, I don't see too many people who are in their, let's say, 60s or over 65 here this morning. You probably have some of those folks in your congregation. But So if you're like over 65, you're in retirement and thinking about just enjoying your time with your grandchildren and all that, you know, that's, that's a beautiful thing. So your, your, your aspirations have died, right? You're kind of like, hey, you know, I've got hopefully maybe another 10, 15 years, and, and I'm just going to kind of enjoy my life this way. But you, you're not aspiring. You're, the, the trajectory of your aspirations are, are not uh, going in the direction um, uh, that, that you, uh, that was headed when you were younger, or in your 30s, 40s, and 50s. But for most of you, especially for younger people in their 20s and 30s, you are extremely aspirational. There's a book written by Colin Campbell. I think it is The Rise of the Modern, Rise of Modern Consumerism. And he says that the way we think about the future, this kind of naive optimism that we have about the future, or, or, or about our reality and what we consider, to make, what we consider uh, happiness in our lives, is actually very future-oriented for young people. You know, you know when, uh, let's say, uh, an older person comes into your life and they say, hey, Jeannie, you've got so much potential. Right? And, and you're like 22 and they're saying, oh, you have so much potential. What they're literally saying is, you, act, you have absolutely no actual, you haven't done anything in life, and who knows, you might be a complete, utter failure, but you seem to have a lot of potential. <laughs> that, that's aspiration. I remember when I first moved into my, God bless me, uh, and my family, my wife and myself, um, we live in a, a, a Victorian row house uh, in the city of Austin, in Charlestown. And uh, it was built in 1860, right? So high ceilings. Um, gold, we, we have the ceiling medallion and, you know, all of those fixtures, uh, new old posts, all of these things. So it was, it's extremely charming. It's an old home and all that. So we went in there. We were so happy. I remember when we closed on the home about 11 years ago, and I was like, Lord, this, it's a miracle that I was able to move into this home and to be able to afford to buy a home in the city. And so I, I walked out, and because... We walk everywhere when you're kind of in a city like Boston and take public transportation, and I hate to, I hate to drive. So it's kind of walking down and then just kind of made a turn the next block and went to this little sandwich shop and ordered a sandwich. Really, really happy. My heart is full. And, and my wife and I, we prayed, may this be a, a place and, and a destination of, of ministry for our people. Uh, and so while I was waiting for my sandwich, I picked up 
magazine. Um, and uh, this is full disclosure, one of my favorite magazines. It's, it's kind of potentially harmful for your sanctification, uh, is Architectural Digest. <laughs> and so I started looking through that as I'm waiting for my sandwich, and I see this, I see this refrigerator. Gagano, sub-zero, right, like, like zero is not good enough, so sub-zero, <laughs> Gagano, huge refrigerator, probably about $20,000. And I'm thinking, I need one of those. <laughs> I don't even cook, okay? <laughs> Why? Because it's all about aspirations. The thing is, it's not so much about the actual that we have, but our naive, naive optimism is always future-oriented. I might not be what I would like to be now, but I've got dreams, and I hope I'll get there someday. Those are the types of people, young people, who are coming into the city of Lexington. Um, another example would be uh, so uh, an MIT faculty member will tell me, you know, whenever I start my very first lecture in engineering, I've got 200 students sitting in there. Now you have to understand that every MIT freshman, right, MIT, right, in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, sometimes we joke by, we say it stands for made in Taiwan. <laughs> <laughs> because 35% of the population at MIT uh, is Asian, but... Um, <laughs> So 200 students are sitting there, and he has to break the news to these MIT students. Now, every MIT student got an 800 on their math in the SAT. Like, like getting like one wrong, 790, that's like, you're, you're, you're an utter failure. You cannot come into MIT if you got one wrong on the math, right? You might end up in Berkeley, Stanford, or Caltech, but not at MIT. So, so they're all coming in here, probably the valedictorian. They probably got a perfect score on the SAT, not just the math, but they're pretty smart in English too. Now remember, most of them are socially awkward. That's why they're at MIT. <laughs> but, but they're brilliant. An argument can be made that the students who get into MIT are actually much more intelligent than the students who get into Harvard. Right? But the Harvard ones are the ones who are going to kind of run the world. But, but the MIT kind of math, science, STEM-oriented uh, uh, folks are going to be the ones who create things. Um, and so this is what he says to them. He says, I know that this is your first class, first lecture at MIT. And you're proud to be here. I know you're smart. And, but you might think that you're smarter than you, than you actually are. And I have to break the news to you. You haven't been assessed. You haven't done any homework. You haven't taken any exams, but a third of you right now, the third of you, you're already at the bottom third of your class. <laughs> and the sooner you come to that realization, the sooner you'll have sanity in your life. They're thinking, what do you mean? That's, that's not me. I'm not the third. I was the smartest in my public high school back in Lexington, Kentucky. You might have been the smartest in Lexington, Kentucky, but now you're a freshman at MIT, and you're in the bottom third. And so, so again, these, again, these are the kind of aspirational people who will show up. Another example would be a concert mistress for her youth philharmonic orchestra. Let's just keep picking on Lexington, right? Because it's from Lexington. All sorts of potential. You watch her play and it's like, wow, she's the next Itzhak Perlman or Zuckerman or Josh Bell. She's brilliant. And then she brings her violin and she gets on the subway. She's, she's, she didn't get to, into Juilliard, but she got into New England Conservatory. And uh, she's there now in this great program in Boston and she's taking the subway and she's, she's headed over to, to NEC. And then she hears this person playing the violin 
in the subway stop, he's better than her. He's better than her. He's playing the subway stop. This is the life of aspirational people. And so the city can be extremely isolating. Dreams go unrealized. Name building is unsuccessful. Aspirational insecurities and idols are revealed. But here's the entry point for the gospel, which claims that the name is received and not earned. The name is received and not earned. It says that that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not that there will be no condemnation in the future. No, there's no condemnation now. So what's going to be against us? Who's going to be against us if God is for us? Romans chapter 8. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? We already have a name. We already have, we already have the actual, the stuff of righteousness that gives us our significance and our value, our identity is already secured. It's not something that we necessarily have to aspire for. But aspirational people in a city like Lexington, they're they're coming here trying to make a name for themselves. Secondly, the second kind of person who's drawn to the city as a magnet because cities are centers of worship and hope and therefore attracts these folks will be marginalized people. Marginalized people. Social outsiders. Outcasts. It's not coincidental that you have more people struggling with poverty or poor people living in cities than anywhere else. And so people will make the argument, yeah, see, cities are no good. You know, cities, cities uh, uh, make people poor or, or they create more poor people. No, it's, just, it's that the poor people are going to cities because they see that as a potential place of refuge because they recognize there must be systems in cities that can accommodate for their need better than ex-urban communities. The gay community is not coincidental. Or thirdly, explorational people, creatives, non-conformists, artists, musicians, escapists, free spirits. These are people who are viewed as being weird in non-urban settings, but they come to urban settings and they're hip. These are the cool people. These are the people that you want to get to know. They're the creative ones that will will shape our world. So Jesus is a center of worship, as we know as Christians, because he is the new temple. He attracts people who are looking for hope. I shared this in one of the sessions yesterday, but when you look at Mark chapter 1, it's Jesus calls his, did, did I share this last night? Okay. Um, so Mark chapter 1, um, he's calling his disciples. So he goes out to Simon, Peter, and Andrew, brothers, and they're fishermen. And he says, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. So what, what happens? They left their nets and they followed Jesus. And then he goes to another uh, uh, two brothers, James and John, who are also fishermen. And he says the same thing. Come, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. And what happened with them? They left their father. So, so what Mark is trying to say, because it's the same Greek verb that he uses. So Simon and Andrew left their nets, which is essentially their career. And then James and John left their father, which is kind of wider uh, a corporate family. So, so what Mark is trying to say is when Jesus comes and calls you, when you align your allegiances with this Savior who calls you to follow him and to be his disciple, that means he's going to radically reprioritize your career and your family commitments. 
That he is saying that you need to re-systematize your commitment to your work and your commitment to your family in light of your allegiance to me. And secondly, what is the strategy for reaching cities? So let's see if we could uh, get to some practical thoughts here, especially for those of you who are in leadership, this might be helpful. But, be, but before we go on to talk about the strategy for cities, you need to have a posture towards the city and your culture that is, that is a healthy one. So Robert talked about uh, be careful that, that the church needs to be careful not to, not to engage culture by being a community that is, what were his terms again? Fortification, accommodation, and domination. So I'll just kind of use other words, but I mean the same thing. So you cannot despise or leave the city. You cannot reflect the city and its corporate idols. You cannot fight the city. You can't use and ignore the city. What you need to do is you need to serve and love the city. You need to serve and love the city. So what, it, what, what should TCPC's uh, contextual strategy be? Uh, here are some things to consider. Number one, seek the welfare of your city. Seek the welfare. I don't know if you know the context of Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah is the true prophet of God. But there was all, actually a false prophet of, God, prophet of God, and his name was Hananiah. Hananiah, when you read the first part of, uh, of uh, Jeremiah 28 and 29, you're thinking, oh, wow, yeah, he, he sounds like one of us. So remember, Israel, once they fell to the Babylonian Empire, were what? They were now going to be held in captivity, right? Because Jerusalem fell, right? They went into captivity, 587 B.C. or so. And so the Babylonians were taking the most gifted leaders, Daniel and the like, and they were bringing them into Babylon. And so you've got this Israelite community. They're, they're outside of the city, and they're kind of ready to go in. And Hananiah, a prophet of God, says, you know what? Hey, hey, we need to stay out here. We can't go in there and get Babylonized. We can't go into the city and get secularized. We can't go in there and be influenced by the bad, evil culture and city. You're saying, hey, that, that sounds like, that's, that's not a bad, I, this is the kind of posture we're supposed to have. And this is the posture that a lot of churches have held on to for many, many years. Fortification, not accommodation, but domination. So we're going we're gonna to create this, this uh, uh, different subculture, and we're not going to go in there. That was a false prophet, Hananiah. The true prophet of God, Jeremiah, comes and says, no, that's not God's plan for you. You need to go in to the city. You need to live in the city, work in the city. I realize not all of you are called to, to, uh, to live uh, in the city of Lexington, so, so just... Don't dismiss me right here and say, hey, I just, I just built a home out here, you know, 10,000 square feet. I've got horses and, you know, so, okay. But you're still here. You still work in the city. Your business is still involved with the city. But the point is that you can't have an anti-Lexington bias. You can't have an anti-city bias. You can't have an anti-cultural bias. Because, because Jeremiah says you need, to, you need to be involved in what's happening in the city and in the culture and you need to seek, you need to pray, you need to be concerned about the welfare of that city because when you're concerned about the welfare of the city and the culture, then your welfare will go well. I know oftentimes churches tend to think about church growth. I try to encourage people and, and, and let me tell you, it's a, it's, as a pastor, it's always tempting. It's like, hey, you got to have the church growth. We, we need to kind of show the numbers, let people know that we're valuable, right? The larger our church is, and I guess people think that we're more significant. These are the kind of idols that we struggle with as pastors. But we need to pray for city growth. 
more than church growth. Because when you're concerned about city growth, you cannot engage in a vision for city growth without the church growing also. But you need to be concerned about the city. And when you're concerned about the city, then God will grow healthy, gospel-centered, gospel-shaped, neighbor-loving, gospel-preaching, gospel-neighboring churches for the glory of God and for the good of Lexington and the good of the bluegrass, purple grass, green grass. But there are dual dangers that compromise faithful contextualization. The first is abandoning, abandoning your worldview in the city. That is, you accommodate or you over-contextualize or you assimilate or you capitulate, whatever word you prefer. And the other danger is so that part you like, you say, yeah, 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 hey, the, the slippery slope. Once you start going that way, hey, we're going to become like the main line. <laughs> Have greater confidence in your commitment to the gospel. If you're committed to the gospel... You don't have a reductionistic view of the gospel. You have a robust, rich theological vision and gospel DNA that shapes everything. Why should you be scared? Why should you be scared? The other danger is that you privatize your worldview. So you under-adapt. Or you ignore. Or you fortify. Or you dominate. Or you evade. I think that they're both, that they're both dangers. They're dual dangers that will compromise faithful contextualization for you to know what it means to engage in a contextual mission for your city and your culture. Secondly, so seek the welfare. Number two, ask questions of your city. Shameless promotion of my book, but in a, in a, a section, uh, I have the question, who is your city? I borrow that from, not what is your city, but who is your city? I borrow that from Richard Florida. So you need to ask questions of your city. And here are five questions I think you need to ask. What is your city's history? I gave you a little bit, right? McConnell, 1775, Lexington, after Lexington, Massachusetts. So you should all root for the Patriots. You have a connection back to New England and back to Boston and to Charlestown. So what is your city's history? Uh, what are your city's values? What are your city's values? So take Silicon Valley, for example. A friend of mine has a church in San Jose. What are the values of San Jose? Innovation, an entrepreneurial spirit, work, achievement, wealth, agility, speed. They can't tolerate anything that goes slow. What are your city's dreams? Look at Silicon Valley again. They want to shape the world through creating and exporting ideas and innovation. That's the dream of Silicon Valley. Shaping the world through creating and extorting, ex, did I say extorting? Possibly extorting, but uh, <laughs> exporting ideas and innovation. Las Vegas, on the other hand, has a different dream. It shapes the world by being a pleasure destination. It doesn't export ideas and innovation, but it imports consumers. What do we know about Las Vegas? What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Silicon Valley, nothing that happens in Silicon Valley is gonna stay in Silicon Valley. It needs to go out there and shape the world. You see how when you look at the different dreams of cities, it completely changes the way you understand the ethos? Number four, 
what are the city's fears? And of course, this will be the counterpart to the values. Like so, for example, if you value, even for yourself as an individual, if you value your career and your work, then your nightmare is going to be that, uh, that you uh, become unemployed. If money is your value, then the nightmare or the fear is going to be that uh, you, you lose half of your net worth. Now, I'm sure you could tell by now that I probably have some issues with neuroticism. And um, I do. And, and so even to this day, I'll have some nightmare dreams. You know what my nightmare dreams are? I say this to my shame. Um, I am in my calc AP calculus, BC calculus class in high school. And it's the very last exam that I need to take in order to graduate and go to college. And I walk into that class and I'm taking the exam and I don't know anything on the exam. And if I fail that exam, then I fail that class, I cannot graduate, I can't go to college. I'm a 50-year-old man. I have four earned degrees. And I'm still struggling with not passing my calculus class? Again, I'm, tr I'm just trying to you know, share a little bit here, not overshare, but share about that is a value for me, an idolatrous value that still lingers in the basement of my heart somewhere. So on the outside, because I know how to present myself as a professional, that you might not recognize that. But when I'm sleeping, my dentist knows. He says, stop grinding your teeth. I said, yeah. I'm not irritable to my wife and I think I'm emotionally balanced and doing ministry. I got to get it out somewhere. So I do it when I'm sleeping. <laughs> Grind my teeth. Have these nightmares once in a while. So what are your city's fears? What are your fears? What are your city's ethos? Okay. And, and the third way that you will engage in contextual mission, so first is seek this welfare, ask. Second one is ask questions of your city. Third is engage your city's storyline. And I talked a little bit about that yesterday, about entering, destabilizing, and restabilizing in light of the, the gospel story. So I'll just use, I'll just use a, a one more, just another example. You know that one of the major storylines of our culture is the appreciation for diversity, for diversity. And that's why when people say, oh, how do you talk about uh, gender dysphoria or gender identity and, uh, and about uh, about uh, secular sexuality, and how do you try to talk about that and, 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 and to try to explain it from the perspective of a biblical sexual ethic? You know, that must be kind of hard because we, we get quickly dismissed and, uh, and our voice has no credibility in the public square uh, when it comes to these things. And I say, well, I just try to use the, the cultural storyline of the culture to show that their view on that particular topic is inconsistent to their value of the culture and the storyline. So if diversity is something, like racial diversity, if, if, if racial diversity is something that they're supposed to appreciate, then they, they should have a robust view and appreciation for races. I'm going to argue in a moment that our secular culture does not. I'm talking about, for those of you who want to kind of see it more clearly, the politically left-leaning liberal media agenda on race is narrow. I'll say that in a moment. I'll show you in a moment. Um, so I'm not just talking about the people on the right. 
Of course, people on the right, they might have racist tendencies, but I'm going to argue that the people over here whom you think are people who are a lot more open about racial diversity and all that, they're actually not as open as you think. But I would say, again, with diversity, you just talk about, look, if, if, if you appreciate diversity, then why would you not appreciate gender binary? Like, clearly, there is a diversity of genders. There is a male and there is a female. Why would you, according to your storyline of diversity, why would you not grab onto that scientific slash biblical position, biological binary position, when it coheres better with your diversity storyline? Are you with me? Are you following? Very, very inconsistent. How can you support, support racial diversity, but when it comes to gender diversity, oh, no, no, that's, we, we, we people can decide what their gender identity is. So, so I'm just trying to show that it's inconsistent to do that. But I will also show, again, coming back to a racial diversity, the Bible has a beautiful picture of what racial diversity is. Revelation 7, every tongue, tribe, and nation. I want you to know that our future is not only an urban future, right? The new Jerusalem, the new city will descend, and this old city is going to be completely renovated without sin. It's going to be beautiful. And that's going to be a multinational, multilingual, beautiful expression uh, of God's people. So, so if you feel uncomfortable with people who are different than you are racially, well, that's, our, that's your future. So, so just know that that's what's coming. It's going to be a beautiful thing. You say, oh, I'm going to feel socially awkward. No, no, you won't because you'll be sanctified and uh, there'll be no sin and uh, race, race is going to be a beautiful thing. But this is actually what the culture says about race. They don't really believe in racial diversity because what, they, what they're arguing for is uniformity. That's not what the Bible teaches. And that's not even really healthy for, for, for sociological relational development. Uniformity? Uniformity says, hey, let's be colorblind about the different races. Colorblind? Like, I see somebody and that person's brown or that person's black, that person's white or that person's a little yellow or that person. <laughs> what do you mean be blind? Now, the intention might be good in the sense that, oh, you know, don't, don't, Focus on the differences. But the reality is that we're different. So what they're trying to say is, hey, let's just kind of just be uniform. But we're different. How can we be uniform when we're different? The Bible has the beautiful picture of what real beauty is when it comes to racial diversity. It doesn't, it doesn't argue for uniformity, but what does it argue for? Unity in diversity. Appreciate all the differences, celebrate all of the wonderful things in your unique racial culture, but don't let that difference divide you. That's a beautiful way to build a shalomic, welfare-driven, peaceful community, counter-community to what the world is trying to argue for. Um, so again, just another example of what that uh, would uh, look like. Number four approach, uh, strategy for contextual mission. Uh, shape our city's uh, uh, vision. Shape our uh, city um, uh, vision. By having a church that incorporates four ministry fronts that are balanced. We call this in our uh, network Integrative ministry. You need to have a balanced, integrative ministry. So I'll just list them and, and then go through them quickly. Number one, evangelistic worship. Number two, community development. Number three, justice and mercy. Number four, integration of faith and work. Okay, so those are the four ministry fronts. If you're thinking of your church community kind of like a box, you need to make sure that all these fronts are being addressed as you're trying to be an integrated, 
gospel-shaped church that has fronts that are balanced in engaging your culture with a contextual mission that is robust. That is what you're trying to do. So number one, evangelistic worship. Number two, community development. Number three, justice and mercy. Number four, integration of faith and work. Or to say it another way, connect people to God, connect people to each other, connect people to the city, and connect people to culture. So let's look at these quickly. Evangelistic worship. You need to make sure, and I'm sure this is already happening, I haven't been in one of your worship services, but if you need to tweak some things, I think the leadership can consider this, but my sense is you're probably doing this well. Make worship intelligible and comprehensible for skeptics. I did not say comfortable. I don't think worship, the, the, the goal of worship is to come in and be comfortable. If we're coming in with our baggage and our sin and our idols, then absolutely won't be comfortable because you're hearing the gospel where the truth is being spoken in light of love and grace and you're being confronted and challenged with the work of Jesus. So, so, so there's going to be a little bit of, of a challenge, but hopefully by the end of the service that you will be encouraged and affirmed and to be able to walk out with hope. But it's not just going to be comfortable. You don't just kind of come and say, oh, I want the service to be comfortable, so just tell me what I want to hear. Um, that's not what worship is about. But it has to be intelligible and comprehensible. So whatever language that the presiders and the liturgists use, and of course the, uh, the preacher, that they need to use language that is in the vernacular. They need to discourse in the vernacular. If they're going to use a particular word, make sure that they define it and explain it. So the skeptics will say, what, what's that? I, I've never heard of that idea. I don't know what that is. Especially for millennials. Millennials, remember, they, they, they are... They are biblically illiterate, they don't have theological categories. So, so they don't know. You have to explain simple things like sin. Well, what is sin? I don't know if there's sin. Oh, that's, you know, sin is relative. It's, you know, I mean, it's what, whatever you think. And you need to give a robust view of a, of a human anthropology to describe for people what their human condition is. Not only because the Bible says it, but, you know, we also have empirical forensic evidence, just ask the spouse. So, you know, we, we have all of that. It's just like, okay, exhibit A. <laughs> the last two days. So, um, so evangelistic worship. And we need to, don't, we need to preach grace. Uh, I'm sure that that already happens. Uh, and we need to talk about skeptics not in the third person but you need to speak directly to them. Now, the reason why I might have done that multiple times is because I'm at a conference like this, but if I were preaching, I would speak directly to the skeptic. I'd say, glad you're here. I know you haven't grown up in the church and a friend invited you, so happy that you're here. You might not agree with everything that we say, but we hope that you will have good questions. You might ask, you know, you might doubt your doubts and, and, and consider the person of Jesus. If you have any questions, you know, we'd love to talk with you. Feel free to agree to, we can uh, agree to disagree on whatever is being said, but we're glad you're here. Our church exists uh, for people like you. You know, whatever, statements like that. Uh, and, um, and then community development. Do you remember, in, I'm sure this doesn't happen at this church. If it does, then just hear this as a prophetic word. But um, uh, in, in some traditional churches, they would ask people to stand up. And it would introduce them, right? So, oh, okay, hey, so-and-so is here, and could you please stand up? That's the last thing that a skeptic wants to do, to be exposed like that. The reason why skeptics come to larger congregations is so they can have anonymity. Just kind of quietly slip in. And, and, and same thing for me. When I'm on break, I try to sneak into some local churches because I don't want to go back to my church because then people will bother me. So I just kind of, I just kind of go quietly. But I know too many pastors, and, and when I go to some churches, they recognize me. I kind of try to hide in the corner, and they'll be like, "Hey, Pastor So and So is here. Can you please come and give us a prayer of blessing and give us the benediction?" 
I'm there in shorts and I feel underdressed and I'm like, oh man, we don't want that to happen. Just leave us alone. And don't talk to us in the third person. Talk to us directly. And be respectful. Be respectful and humble and preach grace. And secondly is community development. Connect people with each other. I'm sure you're doing that pretty well here through fellowship groups, small groups, community groups, mezzanine level, neighborhood kind of gatherings. And thirdly is justice and mercy. Let me just say a few things about justice and mercy. Christians are not called to charity. Just pity those people who who are struggling. I'll, I'll be charitable. You know, I don't know why that person got into that situation, probably made some poor choices, and, but I, you know what, I'm, I'm still going to be charitable. No, no, that's not what the call of justice and mercy is. Mercy is not, for a Christian, mercy is not a luxury. Kind of like, oh, if I have some extra time, yeah, sure, sure, I'll be merciful. <laughs> mercy is a necessity. It's not a luxury. It's not like after you put on your clothes, before you go out, and then, and then you accessorize. Mercy is not an accessory. It's a necessity. It's, 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 the, it's the pants that you put on before you leave the house. It's a, it's a necessity. I don't know how you do it here in Lexington, but, you know, it's like, can't go out in your undergarments in public. So... Um, And so here are some questions that you can ask for establishing practical policy in the church. Just some questions. You're going to have to figure out what contextually works. Number one, here's the level of priority. How much should we help? Number two, defining the poor. Who should we help? Number three, are there any conditions or restrictions? When... Under what conditions, if any, do we help? Number four, justice or only mercy? In what way do we help? Living there or coming in, from where should we help? Respect or just pity? What attitude should we help? With what attitude should we help? So I think that if you don't have a robust group of people who have a deep social conscious about these things, right? I've heard a couple of times people said there is a county nearby here that is one of the poorest counties, right? Did I hear that correctly? So there are all sorts of needs. I mean, even hearing from a lot of these uh, uh, civic leaders, wonderful thoughts, very, very thoughtful. Uh, they've outlined for you as a church community, as a faith-based organization, uh, that there are all sorts of needs. Now, again, you're not going to be able to solve all the needs. But don't let that paralyze you for doing nothing. Oh, we're not going to be able to change all of that. Of course you're not. It's going to to require a collection, a a collaboration of like-minded churches to be able to serve your community for that sort of transformation to happen in your culture. And hopefully, as more Christians and more churches uh, embrace the gospel this way, that there will be a tipping point in your city. And and lastly, it would be the integration of of faith and work. The integration of faith and work. Uh, Urban um, theologians have talked about it this way. That when we read the book of Esther, right? You know Esther, the queen of Persia, When you read Esther, uh, that interesting book that has no reference to God, the one book in the, in the Bible that has no reference to God, very interesting, uh, that Esther, even though it's kind of place where it is in the Bible, is, is at a historical period that is uh, at the same time as Ezra and Nehemiah. So that means that you need to read Esther synoptically, along with Ezra and Nehemiah. Kind of the way you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's kind of like Esther, Ezra, and Nehemiah. Okay? 
And when you look at this, it's interesting. There, you know, when you look at these so-called Jewish heroes who are very uh, different. Ezra was a minister. He taught the Bible. Nehemiah was an urban planner who helped rebuild the wall and provide infrastructure for Jerusalem. Esther was somebody who had power in government. She was in the position to establish public policy. So one person was engaged in spiritual welfare. The other one was engaged in community development and social and economic flourishing. And the other person was involved in social justice and public policy. And when you look at the collection of these three leaders synoptically, it was a combination of a lay clergy team. You had Ezra, who was clergy, and you had lay people as uh, Esther and Nehemiah. You also had a uh, male-female leadership. Now, don't get nervous. I'm not speaking against complementarianism. It's just, I'm just telling you that both men and women were engaged uh, in leadership. Um, and, um, and so it was a holistic ministry. It was a holistic ministry. They were being called to serve their city, to leverage, listen to this, to leverage their careers and power for others, to utilize their financial and cultural capital to serve others. That's what we're being, what we're being called to do. So when you think about your work, I know there's going to be a wonderful uh, seminar later on on faith and work. Actually, it seems as all the seminars are related to this fourth uh, uh, frontier about the integration of faith and work. So that's, that's great. Um, make sure that you don't have a Greek Aristotelian view of work. Because you say, well, what's the Aristotelian view of work? I mean, you might not know it, but you might embrace that view. Aristotle, in one of his writings on politics, not philosophy, uh, this is what he says. He says that when I think about work, the highest value that you can place on a particular type of work will be contemplation, not just kind of manual labor. That, that we should leave for the servants. This is what Aristotle said. Contemplation? So, so this is the kind of highest view. So if, if I'm interpreting this within our, our, our late modern context, it would be something like this. All of these so-called vocations that require deep reflection, contemplation, medicine, law, finance, Education, you know, all of these things. And again, I'm not saying this in, in a pejorative way, that, that those industries and those careers are valuable. But doing things with your hand, manual labor, that's for the servant. That's not a biblical view of work. That's an Aristotelian view of work. It is an elitist view towards work. When you think about the beginning, God was... An image that we're given of God in his creation, that he's a gardener. He is a gardener. And then the Messiah, he was a carpenter. Think with me. Why is it, because I, I like to clean, it's very um, therapeutic uh, for me, so I actually enjoy cleaning the house. Okay? And... Um, why is it that when I'm cleaning the house, cleaning the bathroom, scrubbing the bathtub, cleaning the toilet, vacuuming, doing all of that, that there's value to the work that I'm doing? But when someone else whom I hire to do that work, all of a sudden I have a low view of that sort of work that's being done. You see the irony here? It's because we have an Aristotelian view of work. We have stratified all the different types of work that happens where God says all work matters to him and God matters to all work. 
except for some obvious work that's clearly directly engaged in evil, wickedness, and sin, but most of our work. So we have to make sure that we don't have an Aristotelian Greek view of work, but that we will have a robust, healthy, biblical view of work. Remember, work existed before the fall. Work has been tarnished by the fall. If God is a worker, he works, then he rests. He works, then he rests. So the whole key is that we need to recognize the beautiful balance of the work, rest, Sabbath cycle. So when I hear some younger people, like some folks who are in hedge funds, for example, and so they're very successful, and then you know, they, they retire at the age of 45, and they're just kind of working, but they're just kind of doing it for fun, but they don't really need to be doing that kind of work. I try to challenge them by saying, I don't, I don't really see retirement in the Bible. I really don't. Now, I understand the, 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 the practical implications of retiring because you don't have the same sort of level of energy and, and the, the opportunity and the resource and all that. Things slow down, right, as you kind of get t- towards those years of retirement. So, so, so I understand that. But don't view work as, oh, you know, kind of, I had to do that, but oh, I can't wait until I just find rest and recreation. You need to have a more sanctified, redeemed view of work. Work is a beautiful gift that God has given uh, to us. So how'd like, how would I like to end? Uh, while our earthly cities can never provide ultimate refuge, fulfillment, or hope to their citizens, by God's common grace, they can flourish humanity and foreshadow that future city in which we will ultimately thrive in perfect communion with our God. So there is that kind of flourishing moment in our city. But there's also famishing. Yet, our cities cannot fulfill us in any ultimate sense. Indeed, they are cracked and broken, unable to sustain the weight of our worship. It is often the case that the urban engine creates more cultural pollution than it does true prosperity for the people. They can become centers of injustice, indulgence, and idolatry. And that is why we need another way. That is why we need a portal or a gateway to being able to find the true center for all that God wants us to be. So let me see if I can end it this way. By God's grace, Jesus lost the city that was so that we might become citizens of the city, uh, the city to come to make us salt and light in the city that is. If you have a, a, a vision of the gospel that gives you hope for the future, then we realize that we're citizens of the city that is to come, which will cause us not to be indifferent, but to actually make us the greatest citizens, salt and light of the city that is Lexington now, because Jesus lost the city that was. Hebrews chapter 13. He, he was foregoing the refuge of the earthly city, expelled from the presence of God. He suffered outside the city gate, exiled, so that we might receive the citizenship of the city to come, making us the best citizens, salt and light of the city that is. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, grateful to you for your faithfulness to us that you don't give up on weak, frail, fallen, self-centered people like ourselves. We thank you that you have provided a picture of grace that is offered in the person of Jesus Christ, that we are receiving what we don't deserve rather than receiving what we do deserve. We thank you that in Jesus, that he was willing to forego the city that was, going into exile, receiving your judgment, dying on the cross 
so that we might receive the beautiful citizenship of the commonwealth of the city to come, making us the, the best resident alien citizens, salt and light to the city that is here in Lexington. Lord, I pray that you will help us to hold on to this contextual missional strategy that will be balanced, integrated, that we will not just focus on those things which build our piety, although we recognize the priority of the inner life, but that we would also engage our culture to be culture makers by your grace, to engage in a burden for the city and the culture, to be able to recognize that mercy is a necessity and not an accessory, that we might be able to, to be people who are living out in the region here in the city of Lexington on mission for the cause of the kingdom of God, for his glory, and for our good. In Jesus' name.